I don't know what the other topic is. I'm sorry, I'll have to look that up later. But that's uh, really crazy, and there's a lot of evidence that it was super effective as the war ended and German officers testified. Um, and it was so uh, so effective that even as D-Day and the Normandy invasion was happening, the Germans were still convinced, like they said the double agent had said, like they don't send reinforcements. They were still uh, more heavily defending the, the lower southern part where they thought the uh, D-Day invasion would happen. And so who knows, without Operation Fortitude and the diversionary tactics, like who knows how that war would have turned out and what we'd even be like today um, without things having played out like they did. Uh, I want to flip that and say, I, as I mentioned earlier during worship, I really believe that often we are the victim of diversionary tactics. Um, that cultists uh, and Romans, that the truths about God are evident just in our own hearts uh, about how we were created. That there's something in us, wired in our DNA by our creator that says, he's real, he's good, he's loving, he's perfect and righteous. And yet, this is where I think we have interference run throughout our entire lives. Um, from the moment we were conceived, all of a sudden, it's meant to divert us from that truth of which was wired within us that, is he really real? Is he really good? That same lie that happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. Can he really be trusted? Is he a father? Is he a God that has your best interest at heart? Or is he just concerned about his own glory and using you as a pawn in that big game? Uh, and I think that lie is put on repeat in a lot of different ways throughout our lives um, and throughout the messages that we're consuming. And it comes in a lot of different forms. And because it comes in so many forms, just as you saw in, in Operation Fortitude, there was a lot of elements to create the deception from blow-up tanks to a fake, uh, a quasi-general, like a real general, but in a fake command. There's just so many elements that made up the deception. And in us, I think it's the same way where it's really hard to distinguish distinguish truth from lies. And in that, um, I think it's always like a question for you and I, what do you want? And that one's like, it's so, so big yet so simple, it kind of like can paralyze you. If I cornered any of you like here after church, like, hey, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Um, you'd be like, what? what does that even mean? Even though it's a simple question, what do you want? And you see somebody in scripture, when Jesus approached the man who had been uh, paralyzed for 40 years, uh, he comes up, uh, the man says, you know, like, I'm, I'm sick, and Jesus asks him, do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? And the man, instead of saying, yes, he says, how am I supposed to? No one's around to help me get into these healing waters I've been sitting by for years. And so he doesn't even answer the question. He just makes an excuse. And I think that's often what we are getting diverted by. I'm coming back to, what do you want? What is it? And a lot of you might have a few answers, like, well, I, I want to be popular. I want, I want to be victorious. I want to be good at this thing that I really like. I want to be rich. I want others to see me as successful. I want a partner. I'm lonely. I want to be less lonely. And like we list off the things like, I want this, I want this. I want the Chiefs to win a third Super Bowl because two is not enough in the last five years. Right? You know, I want, I want, I want. When it's like, what? Is that really what you want? 
Um, like when Sarah and I maybe get into a conflict, maybe we do. <laughs> it's like, what do I want? I want to win that argument. I want her to see she's wrong and I'm right. It's like, no. What do I want? I want to be unified with my wife. I want to feel like there's somebody who loves me no matter how stupid I am. And yet, the words I use to Sarah don't really reflect that desire. They say, well, what you really want is to win. You want to feel right. You want to be right. As opposed to, like, that's not what I want. I feel much better if I lose. And yet, we're unified. And I think it's the same diversion that a lot of us are falling for by this world. Like, do you want to be rich? No. You can care less about money. You're like, no, wait, that's not true. It's like, yes, it is true. Here's an example. Imagine, I probably told you this before, imagine that you own everything. All of the cattle, all of the gold, all of the land, all the acres, all of everything. You own it. It's yours. Like, okay. But there's no one else on work. The only reason you own it is because there's nobody else. Are you happy? No. If there's no one to share it with, is that really so good? No, you would be miserable if you were all alone and owned everything. So, so you can see as an extreme example, like, ah, it's probably not about the money itself. It's not. And whatever else I want, if it's if it's it's diverting from, I think the main question: Do you want to be well? There's a it's a Greek word used in the scripture we're going to read here in a second called sozo. This one, fully healed, fully whole, well. What if you are the poorest person in this room, and yet you feel whole? You feel whole. You feel peace. You feel well. You feel sozo. Makes me want to say, I feel so so good. <laughs> sozo. What if that's the case? Are you satisfied? Yes. That's what we want, but we find that I, I don't know that God realizes my needs to help me actually have that feeling of wholeness, shalom as you might hear in some classic Hebrew uh, words. So, do you want to be well, and what's getting you there? And what might be diverting you from actually understanding Christ has given you the ability to be made well? He has opened the door. It's wide open in front of us all. Um, so, to get there, I'd like us to turn to Luke 17, and uh, this is starting in verse 11. And so a few weeks ago, we'd ended, uh, we'd ended looking at the first uh, few parts of Luke, uh, of Luke 17. So on the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face, at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found returning to praise God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Sozo is what the, the well word is translated. 
So a little bit of setting here. Uh, Jesus, this is Israel back in Jesus' day, the different areas you often hear about. Um, because it's like, if you don't have some context, like, okay, so what? You're between Samaria and Galilee. So a, a few things to point out. Here's Jerusalem. That is where Jesus is now heading. He's been there before to celebrate some feasts and festivals of the Jewish people. But that's his ultimate goal. And he's, he's very aware, probably aware, that this, I'm going to Jerusalem. It is the, the symbol of our people. It's where the temple is. And when I get there, I'm, I'm probably going to meet my ultimate purpose, which is to die. Um, there's Bethlehem, real close to Jerusalem. That is obviously celebrating Christmas and Jesus' birth. Um, there's Egypt down there. So Jesus had to live down here for a while. Then he spent most of his childhood up here in the north part of Israel, Nazareth. That's where his family ended up settling. Um, a lot of scriptures uh, recorded in these areas of Capernaum up here. Um, we see times when the disciples and Jesus just do all sorts of traveling through this region. Right now, we know he started up here and he's making his way down to Jerusalem. And he's in this area between Galilee and Samaria. The Samaritans have Jewish roots. But they said when the Assyrians had come and taken over Israel and occupied Israel, they brought in new people um, to live in this region, and there's a lot of uh, intermixing between people groups. And so we, what we have is a, a, a very Jewish root of, they believe in the Pentateuch, the, the Torah. They, um, they may have added some things to it. It's not exactly the same as Jewish, but the, the core of it is like, hey, they believe in the same um, history of Israel. Uh, but because of these other Gentile forces, the Israelites see them as like second-hand citizens. Um, so much so that in down here in the temple in Jerusalem, you get signs that say, "Hey, uh, in the inner, you know, before you enter the inner parts of the temple, the outer courts, there's a sign that says foreigners can only go this far, and if not, if you go past this, then you deserve the death you will get." <laughs> and so that of any Samaritans were considered foreigners in that regard because they're not true believers in the faith. So you see some disunity even in this, and we've seen it before with Jesus coming through and saying, okay, um, I obviously the Jews are the chosen people. That's who's going to, salvation will come to all people through the Jews. Uh, but I've also not just come just, I've not come just for the Jews. And we get that glimpse in that scripture like, hey, What's it pointing out? That he's in this area where there's uh, there's definitely some, some tension with the people groups. It's not that they are at complete odds. Like, they intermix. Jesus had planned to stay with Samaritan people, so it's not like Samaritans see Jews and be like, no, no way, no, no how, and not vice versa either. There is some mixture, but there's definitely disunity there. Uh, and that's who we're dealing with. And who gets the healing? A Samaritan man. So that's a little bit of the setting we see from that story in Luke. But there's also something we need to recognize. It's like, oh, there's too many parallels to ignore it. And it's the story in 2 Kings chapter 5, so the Old Testament. The Old Testament, um, honestly, it is hard to understand. Um, it's further in time from what we are now. Jesus often points to it, but he often, um, he doesn't go into much detail. we like, oh, it would be great if he explained every story of the Old Testament. What he tells us is that these stories, all of them, are pointing in about one thing. Him. Like, the whole story is one story meant to say, 
God created things to be perfect and good, his kingdom reigning. Sin came in and soiled it all. He gave us the law to point out sin and point out his perfect standard of which we failed to fulfill throughout history. But Jesus fulfilled it and now gives us a way back to him. So this story in 2 Kings 5, I'd like to read it to you. I think you'll pick up on some of the parallels. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, Oren, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, But that my lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria, Elisha, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you to, to you, Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Oh, I can't do it. Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends to work to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry, went away, saying, Behold. I thought he would surely come out to me. Stand, call upon the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the place, and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Parpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I have not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none of your gifts. And he urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. Then David said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules, load of her. For from now on your servant will not burn offering or sacrifice to any but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes in the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Then David said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules, load of her. From now on your servant will not... I went the wrong direction. <laughs> he said to him, Elisha said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, oh, here we go. Okay, so what you see there is so many uh, so many parallels between the two stories, right? But the one, uh, the parallel that we don't see in Luke's account of Jesus healing these ten lepers, lepers um, and then the story of Naaman, is what is the state of the heart of any of these people? How, how are they able to receive the healing that God wanted to give and gave to them? 
How are they able to do so? So in the story of the ten lepers, we see Jesus just traveling through. And all of a sudden, ten men stood at a distance, calling Jesus, Jesus, Master. Which, they said, is one of the few times that that title is used to Jesus outside of his disciples. Usually the disciples use that word, Master, to describe Jesus. Uh, most of the time, we see him referred as teacher, rabbi. Uh, but master, these lepers call. So there's a couple things that are saying, what is the state of the lepers' hearts? Uh, we don't know exactly what led them to hear about Jesus, that they're able to just see him come down the road and like, master, Jesus, and they stood at a distance, like a sign of humility, right? And we're not going to come up to him. It's not um, ritually clean to do so. We are outcast people by our skin so, Master, we just we would love your attention. Um, we are your subjects. We will do what you ask us to do. And so we see the state of their heart looks like humility. You can imagine a leper. We, I mean, we've talked about lepers before. They say that these aren't lepers in the same sense of the type of leprosy we may have seen in the last 200 years um, and had lepers colonies for. But, but the result is the same. They're unclean people. They're outcasts in their own community. You can imagine being disowned by everyone you know. There's nowhere to go. These sin lepers, all they have is each other. You, you, we are together. And what do they have to rely upon? Their work is gone. Um, their families are gone. Their friendships are gone. They have no standing. And in that standing, I think it's removed one of the key diversions that would have kept them from calling Jesus master. Often we see in the Gospels rich people. Um, in fact, in the next chapter, we'll see the rich young ruler approach Jesus. The next chapter, Luke. That guy is a moral. Uh, he's a moral hero. He says he's kept almost every command ever given from God. Kept him since his youth. It's like, whoa, that guy works hard to follow the law. But Jesus, after saying, have you kept all the commands? Yeah, I kept them all. One thing you lack. Go give all you own. You're rich. Go give it all away. Just follow me. Simply. And he went away sad. Couldn't do it. What if that rich young ruler, instead of a rich young ruler, was a a poor young leper? The one diversion that kept the man from actually seeing God is removed by his status of thinking there's something else that can save me besides Christ. And it makes sense then why Jesus would say how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's as hard for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. Why would it be so hard? Because riches are common in Scripture. It's like it's hard because it gives the temptation to think there's anything else that can save but Jesus. Anything else. It's a diversion. Your riches, your good looks, your talents and skills, they're a diversion if you think they save you at all. Now, does that mean it's like, get rid of them? If they're causing you to sin, we talked about it. Like, cut it off. Yeah, get rid of them. But if they can be used and not diverted from Christ saves, nothing else does, then great. Now we can use those things. But most times they're a diversion tactic. What did we see from Naaman? His own status almost kept him. He was this close to healing, and he turned around saying, forget this. Like, I'm better than this. You know who I am? I... I am a successful man of war. And you didn't even come out to greet me. I'm out. And luckily the servant's like, whoa, 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 wait, hang on. 
you not realize he gave you the command to go and be healed? Are you really going to ignore that just because it didn't happen in the way you expected? And we see a change of heart. I'll go dip in the Jordan. Okay, fine. Now he's healed, and now he wants to give give everything he has for the sake of the one true God who can actually provide this type of healing. Um, Caleb, would you uh, go to that Jesus like picture for me? Uh, the diversion tactics uh, that God um, that are used against us and that build up in our heart to help to prevent us from seeing the true God. They're everywhere. So much so, I don't think we can even fully recognize them. I believe that if you and I came face-to-face um, with the God of the universe, I don't think we could live, honestly, on our own. Um, that's what we see in Scripture. But if we had a chance to see his goodness and glory, the glory that was found in the creation of the world, in Eden, I think that then you get rid of temptations like, this is it, this is good, this is what I've been searching for. All the money, all the dolling up of myself and my body, all the striving, they could cease because we have it. We, we have his righteousness. We have his kingdom. We have God. But then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, but aren't you lacking some of those lies? Aren't you lacking something? When in reality he says, no, I've given you everything you need. I am what you need. I am the bread of life that if you eat, you will hunger no more. I am the living well that if you drink this, you will thirst no more. And then we drink, and it's good, except then we're like, yeah, but is there anything more? And he is promising, no, I am it. I'm all that there is to satisfy that hunger in your soul. Do you want to be filled? Do you want to be well? And he's saying, I am it. The ten lepers, what made them able? Well, they, they started with almost nothing. They weren't hanging on and grafting to anything of this world because they've lost most of it already. Their status, their wealth, their health. And so they're able to just take one. He's coming by. Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. They didn't even ask for healing. They basically are just claiming out submission. Like, your Master, just have mercy on me. That'll be enough. And then he heals them, even though that's not directly what he asked, they asked for. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, Jesus said. All the other things will be given to you. So it really begs the question, one, do you want to be well? And and two, do you want Jesus to fulfill that hole in your heart? Do you believe he can in him alone? The, the thing is that I think we say, yeah, Jesus is good, but it's Jesus and Jesus and, Jesus and. It's similar like we heard Alistair Begg say um, around Easter time when, hey, why did the man on the other cross, the thief on the cross, when he got to heaven, why could he say, what are you doing here? It's not because he could say, well, because I happened to be on a cross and I, I made a good statement. It's like, no, because he, because Jesus. But you've got to get real with yourself. Do you really want Jesus? Do you really want the kingdom of God? Because for a lot of years, I did not. I said, I would like the blessings and benefits, but I really still like life my way. And in that, I have this false sense of security that was exhausting, uh, but ultimately didn't satisfy. It left me hungry for other things. Well, maybe if I get this, then it'll be good. Or this, once I get to this age, once I get married, once I have kids... Once the kids are out of the house, once they're, 
You know, like more, 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 more. Until you realize the strivings never cease. What if it's only Jesus? What if the promise of heaven didn't include the consideration of seeing past loved ones? Well, then I don't want heaven. Okay. Then you aren't trusting in Christ. What if heaven doesn't include streets of gold? Then I don't want it. What if it doesn't include riches beyond your wildest imagination? What if it doesn't include trees or water? It only includes the Father and the Son. And that's all you're guaranteed about the next life, about heaven. Is that enough for you? Like, no, I'd like more. Then you're missing the point. He says, I am the satisfier of your soul. Guess what? There's a lot of good things out of of that. I'm not saying those things aren't a part of the next kingdom coming. But do you want the blessings of the next kingdom? Or do you want the king of the next kingdom? And until you want the king, you're still lost. Because the king's the only one who can save you from all the strivings, all the weight of our sin. It's the only, only thing. I hope you don't get leprosy. But if that's what it takes to see the king and realize this world offers us nothing, if that's what it takes to get rid of the diversionary tactics that I think say he's like, just, just don't pay that close of attention to, to Jesus, then I hope I do get up. If that's what it takes to see him. I hope I lose everything for the sake of knowing Jesus. Knowing him and believing him and trusting him. Because then that's way more real than anything we'll experience here on earth. If you've ever had a great date, Jesus is more real than whatever feelings you felt on that great date. If you've ever had satisfaction in your children, Jesus is more, he's better. If you've ever um, won something awesome, you're like, huh, I'm special. No, Jesus is better. Christ is better. The kingdom is better than that. Lay it all down. I'm not saying uh, don't, don't enjoy those things but know that they're always so temporary compared to Christ. And if you never have any of those things, nothing to fear. They're all so temporary compared to Christ. And in Christ, that's where satisfaction will live. These lepers, ten lepers, you know where they're at today? They're all dead. Their bodies died. Their skin looks a lot worse now than it did then. And in fact, it probably just, it doesn't matter about that. The healing of the lepers is a short-term sign for an eternal reality that Jesus is the Messiah. He is King. And do you have anything to be thankful for today? That any of the things I listed like, yeah, I've got kids and I love them. Oh, yeah, I have family and friends and I love it. I love this church. I love, I love getting older. Like, Sylvie celebrates 16. Like, yeah, it's great. It's fun. I'll be able to drive soon. Is there anything that's good? Anything that's good on this earth is pointing you to Christ. Because anything that's good here, this son, this daughter of mine, this will end. Our father-daughter, father-son relationship, it will end. And very soon. In the scope of eternity, very, very soon. It's like dust. This, the most real thing about this, is Jesus. The love I feel and get to feel that only they well up in me, it's showing me a glimpse of the Christ. And therefore, it's pointing me to the Christ. 
And Jesus said, if I don't love him more than I love these kids, then I have no place with him. I'm misunderstanding how good he is and how ultimate he is if I say, Jesus, I want you as long as I can bring them with me. It's like, no, Jesus, I want you. And that's it. I want you. And you are the thing that sets me free. Not anything in this world. Not health, wealth, family, anything. He says, do you think I came to bring peace? No, I came to bring division. I came to cast a sword through your very heart to realize this world will not save. 